Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices and it's Jan Bartlett for the penultimate program for me for 2016. Today, historian and author Brian McKinley will be talking about two books and a film and also Italian politics. Not quite at the moment, but a bit of history of Italian politics. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan looking at climate change with Australia and what's happening with the policies we've got and what they've got in the Pacific and also energy issues around the world. The passing of Fidel Castro with Joan Coxidge, who's the former president of the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society and former politician. Samar Sabawi was speaking at the Palestine Independence Day celebrations in Federation Square last month and she spoke briefly at that meeting, so we'll hear what she had to say. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when congratulations to big state supremo hoo-hoo, known by the well-deserved pejorative Dan for caving into, sorry, sorry, seeing the light as shone by Lord Rupert of Wapping, who through his Wapping sinners made it clear society lives in terror as evil criminals get away with. Many given sentences with a release date, bail, parole and other abuses, judicial and social weakness. Not that caving in, done it again, sorry, seeing the light has helped the pejorative. The whopping sin still ran a cartoon making Dan out to be the irresponsible it has declared him every day since the people abused democracy and got the last election wrong. Well, every day except Christmas Day, given he now has a Good Friday edition nobody reads. Still, it'll be a boon for the private companies who run our prisons and the construction industry building more prisons as the overcrowded become even more overcrowded and all the extra, sorry, forces of law and order the government will release onto the streets to preserve the peace. Abate that terror by arresting dangerous criminals like African kids committing serious offences such as walking down the street to buy a carton of milk. Canberra was also the victim of irresponsible protests, which Lord Rupert summed up with his renowned responsibility. House of Louts, a mob of 40 unruly protesters shut down Parliament after sidetracking security, many super-gluing their hands to rails. Sidetracking, which presumably means outsmarting, having a plan, a Canberra first. And that uncontrollable socialist deputy supremo Tania Blubber-Sick blubbered that these people had attacked the very basis of our democracy. They must realise the government will not close down the concentration camps, uh, sorry, refugee idyllic holiday island resorts, and should put their faith in democracy, trust, trust in our role as an opposition, guaranteeing we will not close down the refugee idyllic holiday island resorts. 
And Lord Rupert and his government and his opposition agreed people have a right to protest, but they must protest responsibly. And by responsible, Lord Rupert spoke for them, my government and my opposition and I, we, mean it must have no impact whatever. Uh, must be ineffectual, Lord Rupert. Same thing, you idiot. Meanwhile, the government has declared it will not be held to ransom. The passage of the Crush the Evil Union's jackboots con mission bill shows we won't be held to ransom, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull declared. So the bill is identical to the one you called an urgent election over and forgot to mention during the months and months of campaigning. Certainly identical. Well, apart from a few minor changes, minor amendments suggested by our very, very, very close friends on the cross benches. Uh, oh, to make it less draconian on workers, uh, allow unions to act like unions. Uh, no, that's totally unchanged. The government and our very, very, very close friends agreed that evil must not be changed. No, we've eliminated any clauses that may have innocently captured caring employers and contractors. We've provided more work for caring employers. Sensible amendments ensuring the bill crushes only those who must be crushed. And, Hangham High Senator Darren Lincham puffed out his chest, I made sure on this December weekend, evil unions usurping our symbol of freedom, Eureka Flag, will remain a capital offence. Uh, what about their freedom? I exercised my freedom and they are now free not to fly it. Related to all that, bit of unfortunate juxtaposition in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Two P3 stories, those items which made the news, employers have ripped off, Capitalist Review's words, ripped off $4.6 billion from workers through withholding superannuation, including for workers who have made salary sacrifices pocketed by their caring. And separately, large multinational caring employers evading $3 billion or so in tax, although a Tax Justice Network spokesperson said $3 bill would be a conservative estimate. It is important the tax office estimate how much tax that is cheated by multinational corporations is recoverable, he stressed. Thought we'd help him out. For his benefit, what springs to mind to the week that was estimates is in the order of zilch, zero, naught, that range. But the juxtaposition misfortune, opposite page, think piece, if it could be so called, by one of their arch-conservative commentators telling us the government will be flat out over the break, showing how it fights to eradicate problems that cost the economy, or rather, one problem. The massive tax avoidance, the cheating of workers, I hear. Well, no, wrong. Evil union thuggery. Well, the need to curb union excesses and thuggish behaviour, she wrote. Those excesses, she noted, evil unions demanding pay rises, which would surely overcome the problem they keep telling us of slow wages growth.
we'd think they'd be thankful. Evil unions addressing an acknowledged problem in the greatest little economic order of them all. But on the positive side, got a feeling those multinational tax dodges and super rip-off caring employers generally can relax and enjoy their festive season. Although some might say every season is their festive season. They did display their human side through that side-splitting stand-up comedian serving caring business class finances minister Kelly Oderwire workers so evil who told a superannuation audience union super funds must be forced to adopt the same standards as <laughs> we've got to laugh as banks and financial institutions. She had the audience rolling in the aisles. Very funny person. On Very Funny People, in his invaluable advice program to Big Supremo Malcolm and the team, which back in Tiny a bit more for the boss's Big Supremo day was Team True Blue Aussie, Team True Blue Aussie, Tiny's key advice this week, we've got to talk about the issues they will understand, issues that they will understand. Good to see a man who took his own advice because people understood the issues he talked about, which explains the back in Tiny's Big Supremo Day bit. And given Tiny's tiny talk people understood included, climate change is crap, surprised he's mildly upset Malcolm may scupper his grand plan to address the crap, the Green Army. Tiny just loved train killer nomenclature, nomenclature didn't he? Scuppered to save 350 mil to pay for the extra 100 mil Malcolm promised the Greens in return for one of the deals last week, the backpacker tax deal, thereby saving 250 mil in the process. No loss because it's just 250 mil from the environment program and perhaps they can honour Tiny by rebadging the land program as the Land Army Program or Mel's Raiders or acknowledge the Greens, Richard's Raiders. That's alliterative. Mel's Military Marauders, even better. Unfortunately, Mel's Minders are marauding on the climate environment front, upset that a review of the current policy, direct inaction policy, might lead to something as dangerous as a policy. The current seem to be doing something while doing nothing just to appease those few people who believe in the crap. Paying big polluters a fortune to big pollute is working a treat, they acknowledged, conceding with the Minister for Big Polluters, Josh Friedem Icebergs, that other minor government responsibilities like education, health, housing, transport, welfare, well, not corporate welfare, of course, which benefits all of us, will have to be slashed, rather cut, to provide the important trillions to pay the big polluters to keep big polluting. Why, one of the minders, Corey St. Bernardi, said reviewing climate change crap policy by including in the terms of reference the outrageous possibility that big polluters may have to pay rather than being paid to was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and coming from Corey, that's saying something. Don't know why crap brings us back to this. On Malcolm's strongman declaration he won't be held to ransom, that backpacker tax business proved his point. Our position is 32% and we won't budge. Big economic guru Scuttlebin more less son was adamant. Yes, our position is 19% and we won't budge. He was firm.
Absolutely. It's 15% or nothing. Well, or 32. Scuttle then was unswerving. We won't be held to ransom. And no doubt Corey would include this decision not to run the North Dakota pipeline through Standing Rock Siouxlands and sacred sites as yet another one of the dumbest things he's ever heard, would echo the sensible reaction of energy transfer partners. This purely political decision flies in the face of common sense and the rule of law accusing big supremo Barack for change, change, change of pandering to the extreme left, proving all those Native Americans are extreme left and those 2,000 train killer veterans, vets, as they call them over there who joined the protest, are extreme left. Exactly. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Corey looked distressed. Still, there's hope for common sense and the rule of law the new Big Supremo. So finally, picky this week of Big Supremo elect Donald Trample the poor and his offsider Kellyanne Condems the way, she dressed as Superwoman or Wonder Woman or whatever at a Heroes and Villains party and I thought, I wonder who the heroes were. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was... This is the last time that you'll hear historian and author Brian McKinlay for 2016. Today, Jan, as it's the end of the year, I'm going to look, of course, at Italian events. But before I get on to that, I thought I might look at a couple of things people might like to track down in the holiday period. Firstly, two films and then a book about the United States and about the much-talked-about white working class who so much helped to put Trump in power. The films I'm going to mention uh, are about a subject that really shocks me deeply, and that is the Chinese government's use of prisoners of conscience, as well as other people, for operating to, well, literally butcher people like you might well butcher a sheep or a calf at an abattoir's for the organs. Now, this is widely known, and around the world, bodies like the European Parliament and the UN human rights bodies have all condemned the Chinese government without any indication, by the way, that it's shown the slightest interest. What has been happening in China is that dissident groups, people like the Uyghurs of far western China and adherents of a spiritual group called Falun Gong and it's not a political organisation but a spiritual organisation with links to Buddhism and and in some ways to many of us it would appeal something like yoga in many ways. Now these bodies are the subject of ferocious attacks by the Chinese government. Hundreds of thousands of people have been arrested, jailed and tortured and many of the young and healthy and less fortunate, if that's the word, have been selected and then used for hospital transplants of kidneys, lungs, hearts, and other bodily organs, the eyes and the retina of the eye. We don't know how many people uh, have been used in such a way, but used on a large scale. 
some medical organizations, uh, the American Medical Association, has declined now to cooperate or to have Chinese medical specialists come to the United States and work in hospitals on matters to do with transplant surgery. I'm sure your listeners know, in Australia, transplant surgery is valid and it's done with the consent of people who, at the time of their death, make an arrangement to have organs, if they're useful, to be transplanted to people, mostly people suffering cancer, cancer of the liver, famously as Senator Darren Hinch some years ago at death's door was so transplanted with liver from a donor. However, in China, donations have nothing to do with it. And it's known that the government has been using all of these methods to not only stifle dissent, but actually murder thousands and thousands of people, particularly in the spiritual group called Falun Gong, who have been the subject of unrelenting pressure from the Chinese government. And as I said, many medical authorities around the world are now refusing to cooperate. I think that's now true in Australia, where hospitals won't allow Chinese transplant specialists to come here to observe our very sophisticated methods in Australia of transplant surgery, which in its own way, of course, is a splendid thing. But this is a, a violation of human rights on a scale that you'd have to compare with the Nazis or Stalin's totalitarian Russia, because after all, China is that sort of country. What I mean to refer to is two films, a documentary called Human Harvest. Uh, Human Harvest is uh, looking at this whole problem and a second film, a drama, not a documentary, called The Bleeding Edge, which looks at the story of an American businessman in China who has a massive heart attack, taken to hospital, and amazingly a heart is found for him in a matter of hours. But that makes him suspicious. How could the hospital have been so clever to obtain just the sort of heart he wanted because with heart surgery apparently uh, if you're a big strong man as he is in this story and you have a heart attack and you need a new heart you need the heart from another man of pretty much the same sort of physique and he is a, as I said a, a strong active middle-aged man now in the film The Bleeding Edge he sets out to try and find how this is done. Well, it's done because the Chinese authorities have prisoners in prisons who are actually scheduled to be butchered, to be taken away and their organs removed. And in the case of this story, some unfortunate man who'd been held there for just this sort of occasion is taken away to a hospital where he is butchered, and that's the only word to use, to provide the heart that the man in the story needs. It's hard to believe that a government of a major nation could engage in such, uh, such appalling, despicable conduct towards other human beings. 
and I urge your listeners, if they get the chance, to track down these films. You can find information about them anyway on the web and they're available on iTunes if you have that facility. The Bleeding Edge and Human Harvest and it looks at Chinese treatment of people, especially the people from Falun Gong. Second thing I want to look at is uh, an American book I've just read, published here some four or five years ago, called uh, an odd title, called Deer Hunting with Jesus, Dispatches from America's Class War, and published by Scribe, a very innovative Melbourne publishing firm, by the way, who are doing some really good stuff in politics and world affairs. Now, Scribe have published a book by a man called Joe Bagent, B-A-G-E-A-N-T, who grew up in a, an isolated American town, a smallish industrial town in West Virginia, a very poor, neglected, run-down part of America, uh, famously the sort of America from which we've heard so much about recently, about white working-class males and females who helped to elect Donald Trump. These people, despite their poverty, and they are poor people, living in small towns from which many industries have gone, many living on two or three part-time jobs, as do their wives, and they are what is called the working poor. Now, even having 60 or 70 hours of work a week at such low rates of pay doesn't bring them in enough to do much more than scrape along in terms of their weekly income. Many of them find it impossible to afford any kind of health cover. And there's an irony in this because one of the things that Obama did during his presidency was to introduce what was called Obamacare, which Trump and the Republicans are pledged to set about destroying on day one. But Obamacare has been more successful than uh, its critics allow. About 13 million Americans, all of them poor Americans, and just like the people in this book, have been able to get health coverage. Now, it's not like here, where all of us, through our taxation, uh, are covered for things like bulk billing at our doctor or public hospitals. No. What Obamacare did, in a very modest way, was to allow... Uh, those who couldn't afford health cover, and that was about 13 million, it's estimated, who couldn't afford any health cover of any kind, to get cover and the government pays for it. So they have to go to a private company and take out health coverage, but the government pays, the federal government. Now this has been an enormous boost for these people who are relieved of the terrible anxiety about what to do if they become ill. Because if they become ill and need hospital care, there is no way they can get it. That's how the American system operates, terrible though it is. Now, this book looks at these people, and the author has a special advantage. He grew up among them, went away, got a better education, uh, and then became a writer and a journalist, and then returned to this small town called Wilmington, to visit his parents and stay in the town and observe the people. And, of course, coming back, he sees the town and the people in it almost like a foreign country. For one thing, 
one thing that dominates their lives is fundamentalist Christian religion. His own brother is a preacher in uh, one of these large fundamentalist churches. The fundamentalist churches are central. People not only go to church on Sunday, they attend all sorts of functions and meetings held at these churches, which are very substantial organisations. And the whole of their lives are dominated, for instance, their opposition to everything, abortion, evolution, the teaching of evolution in schools, gay marriage, all of those matters all flow, flow from their fundamentalist religious beliefs. So, of course, they regard politicians like Hillary Clinton as the devil's own. They also have an amazing belief, which actually it was said that Ronald Reagan took up in later life, but he was stupid enough for anything, wasn't he? That's the belief in what they call the rapture. Now, in fundamentalist American Christianity, it's believed that Jesus Christ will return someday, you don't know when, might be tomorrow, might be this afternoon, but he will come when Palestine has been completely occupied by the Jews, who at this moment, however, surprise to the Jews, will be converted to Christianity. All these events will occur very quickly, and at that moment, all the blessed, which is the adherence of these churches, all the blessed will be raptured up to heaven. Everyone else will be left behind. And then the whole world, the whole human race, will be destroyed in a series of great battles. Using the Old Testament term, Armageddon, now, that will be the end of the world. This, the author of the book remarks that one day as a young boy of about eight or nine, and he'd heard his parents talk about this almost daily. His father died, he says, sad that he didn't live to see the day of the rapture. And his curious old grandfather used to wander around the town in his spare time with a Bible telling people about the coming of the rapture. And it's central to their beliefs. The boy came home from school, he said, when he was only a little boy of eight or nine, to find that his parents and his brothers and sisters weren't there. The house was empty. They had, in fact, gone unexpectedly to visit a new neighbour and left no note or any indication of what they were doing. He came home and was sure that it was the day of the rapture. His family had been summoned up to heaven and he'd been left behind. And he became hysterical with shock and fear until a neighbour heard him and came in and told him where the parents were. But he said this moment in his life lived with him and he never forgot it. But many of these people live from day to day, as his father did, hoping that this is the day of the rapture. Uh, at the same time, these people have been persuaded by right-wing talkback radio, which they listen to as they work and in their homes, that among the worst things you can be is a member of a trade union, that the unions are corrupt organisations, and therefore they have no one to fight for them for matters like overtime, sick leave, which they don't get, and even the most basic 
minimum wage. Now, <clears throat> there is no minimum wage in, in West Virginia. You have to take whatever the boss offers you. And in this case, in many of the people in this town, they work for as low as 5 or $6 an hour. And even a 60-hour week will only turn them in about 300 bucks. And out of that, they've got to pay usually rent, food, utilities, and try desperately to pay something for health care. By the way, Obama introduced a scheme whereby people who earned less than $45,000 a year had to be paid overtime if they worked overtime. Now, in Australia, we take that for granted. Our unions, our arbitration system over a century have given us overtime, holiday pay, sick leave, compassionate leave, all of those things that Australians take for granted thanks to the trade union movement and thanks to several over the years to Labor governments. Not in Virginia, not in West Virginia, not in any of the American states. So these poor, misguided people don't join unions, don't have anyone to, f to work for them, and consequently uh, live in poverty. He gives an instance. Uh, the, the town had a large factory uh, making a product called Rubbermaid. Now, Rubbermaid, spelled M-A-I-D, uh, was a product, a company that made products for the house. Everything from rubber mats and rubber tiling and rubber utensils. But Walmart, one of the worst, most exploitative American organisations that run huge supermarkets and pay their staff so badly that a couple of years ago, the staff organised to ask customers to contribute to a Christmas benefit fund for the employees of Walmart. Not Walmart itself, they didn't give anything. Now, Walmart told Rubbermaid, sorry, Wayne, we won't buy your product unless you reduce the price by about 30%. And to keep in business, the company had to tell its workers that their wages were going to be reduced by about 30%. Overnight, next payday, you've got 30%. And they were only getting about $15 an hour, which in local terms wasn't too bad. That was cut to $10 next week. Now, he looks in his book at the whole lifestyle of the town, the role of the churches, the role of poverty, all of the things few of these people have ever been able to afford to leave the town to, to explore even other parts of America. New York, even Washington, which is not that far away, could be on the moon as far as they are concerned. And it's a striking picture of the tens of millions of American working-class people who do live in poverty. It's a book I'd recommend to you. Check with your library, look around in the bookshops. You may find it, as I did in a second-hand bookshop, called Deer Hunting with Jesus. And it's a shocking but very revealing picture of American life. And you're listening to historian and author Brian McKinlay. And this radio station is 3CR. And this is the penultimate Tuesday home time for me, Jan Bartlett, for 2016. Now, finally, I want to look at events this week in Italy. I don't want to uh, look at things you would already know. 
If you listen to this program, you're probably pretty well informed about current affairs. But, uh, as you know, the referendum from the Prime Minister Renzi was defeated and he's resigned. Uh, and Italy has plunged into another political crisis. I think he's the 61st Prime Minister since World War II. Now, after World War II, the Americans, the Catholic Church, and to some degree the Mafia, invented a new political party in Italy called the Christian Democrats, because for 20 years, of course, Italy had been ruled by Mussolini's one-party fascist government. The Christian Democrats had the backing of devout Catholics, people in the countryside, against the very powerful Italian left. At the end of the war, the major left-wing party in Italy, and indeed the largest in Europe, was the Italian Communist Party. Now, the Italian Communist Party had always had a fairly moderate view of how the world, of Italy anyway, should be run, but it was linked in those days of the Cold War, linked to the Soviet Union as communist parties, to their detriment everywhere, were. The Italian Communist Party had high hopes after the war of winning power democratically, but in 1948 the Christian Democrats won a substantial victory. The Italian Communist Party, however, took up another line of action, and that was local government. Now, in Italy, local government had been notoriously, and still is, notoriously corrupt. And the Christian Democrats, along with their mafia allies and with the backing of the Catholic Church, basically, uh, had done very badly in local government. And that was where the Communist Party and its left-wing socialist allies did best. Bologna in northern Italy, in central northern Italy, is a famous example. The Communist Party in towns like Bologna, and it's a big city, and a lovely city, I might add, north of Florence, uh, Bologna had, and always has had, right to the present day, left-wing communist socialist party councillors who run the city and they set out about a whole program of, of municipal improvement for instance they were worried about the coming of the great supermarket chains and they encouraged local small markets run by local farmers and business people and Bologna has become famous for its marvellous markets Many other initiatives which Bologna tried out were tried out elsewhere. Cities like Turin, at one time Rome, and many smaller Italian cities came under left-wing control. The communists worked in a coalition with the, the left wing of the Socialist Party. The right wing of the Socialist Party uh, allied itself with Christian Democrats and eventually became part of a coalition government. But then the Christian Democrats were so overwhelmed by corruption scandals involving prime ministers and others that eventually they were wiped out in the polls. And that was the end, really, of the Italian Christian Democratic Party. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s, the communist and socialist groups formed a new coalition called the Olive Tree Alliance, which eventually came to power in Italy and is still a very important part of the present Italian government. Uh, and uh, that is a after all those long years in opposition, was a bit of a miracle for the Italian Communist Party, which subsequently has changed its name, by the way, and uh, a sort of socialist alliance around this group called the Olive Tree Alliance. 
has become quite powerful politically in Italy. But in the 90s, there appeared, was, as the Christian Democrats collapsed, there appeared Silvio Berlusconi. Now, Berlusconi, if you look at him, and I thought of this the other day, and in fact, on Sunday, The Age published a letter of mine on this topic, is an absolute carbon copy of Donald Trump. Loud, brash, rude, arrogant, stupid, ignorant. You'd run out of adjectives to describe the two men. Berlusconi controlled a large part of the Italian private media, which he used unscrupulously to attack his opponents and to promote himself. And eventually, when the Christian Democrats collapsed, he picked up their vote and the right-wing vote to take power in Italy for a number of terms. If you want a preview of what Donald Trump might be like, look at Berlusconi. He went from one mad scheme to another. His supporters gradually fell away, filled with disappointment at his failure really to achieve anything at all. And eventually, sexual scandals. I think many of the listeners will remember a series of famous, notorious parties or orgies as they really were in which he and his friends all took part but unfortunately for Berlusconi some of the young ladies who took part were underage 16 15 year olds again there are parallels with Donald Trump aren't there now Berlusconi came to trial and was uh, for five years removed from public life he was over 70 and couldn't be sent to jail but he lost his seat, lost power, and his party, which is still going, by the way, uh, along with other right-wing parties, uh, has nevertheless lost office. By the way, one other interesting thing in Italy is the emergence of a man called Pepe Grillo. Funny name, but Grillo had formed a thing called the Five Star Party, and they won seats, substantial seats, with some pretty good people, actually, at the last elections. Now, Grillo is not a right-winger like Berlusconi or like Le Pen in France. He has some pretty good ideas. Um, he says he wants a guarantee that the water supply in Italy will never be privatised. He doesn't want to see privatisation of transport and several other measures. He is anti-European. He wants Italy out of the European community. And he is generally one of this new school of anti-political activists. In that way, he's a bit like the Brexit people in Britain. Grillo did remarkably well at the last Italian elections. And not all of his supporters are loonies. It's, we're not looking at Trump and Berlusconi here, uh, though he is, in fact, a former comedian, an odd role for politician and well known before he became a politician and people voted for him partly out of disgust at many Italian politicians and that is uh, I think a notable trend these days so if the present crisis in Italy leads to a general election we might well see Grillo and his five-star party win power now, whether they'll achieve anything is, of course, another matter. Just as Trump, despite all his protestations, is very unlikely to achieve anything at all. And I think we're already seeing a few early signs 
of dissatisfaction in America with Trump. By the way, if you're looking on the web, look up a site, Trump Regrets, Trump Regrets, and it, um, it is now being filled up almost daily with Twitter people who are saying, oh, you know, I think I made a mistake in voting for him. Well, a bit late. But I think we might see Trump following down the same disastrous path that happened in Italy with Berlusconi. Well, this is the last program for the year, Brian. How have you seen 2016? Well, it's been an extraordinary year. I can't remember a year in which events occurred that I didn't think would occur. I mean, I thought the referendum in Britain on Brexit and the consequences of that just wouldn't be carried. A great many people in Britain shared my view, including many, I think, who didn't even bother to vote. And the result, which is now a major crisis in Britain, because no one knows how to implement Brexit, uh, even if you want it, and the Parliament is generally against it. And so Britain is in the middle of a political crisis. The other thing, of course, has been Trump. I wasn't sure that the Republicans would choose him. They did have better candidates. I mean, right wing, not my candidates, but people, two or three of their candidates, the Republican senator from Florida, uh, whose name I've just forgotten, he seemed to me to, to have a good chance. He, he was articulate, you know, young man, you know, young family man, the whole, the whole scene. And Dee Ryan, who's a very right-wing Speaker of the House, nevertheless scrubbed up pretty well, a young man again. But I didn't think the Republicans would choose Trump. Then they did. And then I thought, well, surely people won't vote for him, least of all when the sexual scandals came out. But Hillary uh, was more unpopular than we guessed. The Clintons between them were more unpopular. And in some states, I noticed in Michigan, 120,000 people, most of them who voted the Democratic ticket for the House and Senate, didn't vote for the top of the paper, which is the presidential ticket. So in many states, there were Democrats who probably, like me and you and other listeners, were pretty certain that Hillary was going to win and didn't want to give her the satisfaction of a big win got the shock of their lives, of course, when she lost. So I think by all standards, these last weeks of the year have brought one of the great political shocks of our lifetime. I don't know about you, but when I see Trump on the media referred to as the president-elect, I still have a moment of absolute shock at seeing him because he has so many bad aspects to him. And I think they are the two major events this year around the world. And your good friend Malcolm? Well, yes, but I, I'm sure we all share a similar view here in Australia. Turnbull, who 18 months ago was seen as a small-l liberal and many, indeed many Labor people, I think, thought that he would be vastly preferable to Tony Abbott who was, I think, one of the worst Prime Ministers, along with Rudd, of course, that we've had in our lifetime. And people were glad to see Abbott go. 
and only the right wing of the Liberal Party haven't realised how deeply unhappy people were with Abbott. And uh, at the beginning, Turnbull had an enormous surge of popularity. They thought he was, and I think he is, a genuine small-l liberal on all sorts of issues. But he's not going to run up against the right wing of the Liberal Party and Abbott and his friends in the Liberal Party who are still very dominant. And so poor old Malcolm has been forced to follow policies that I'm sure he doesn't agree with. I'm sure that if he had the way, he'd have allowed a free vote on gay marriage and the issue would be over, closed, settled and pretty much forgotten. Who even now remembers New Zealand, Canada and Britain have had gay marriage for a few years and, and the world hasn't collapsed? All I can say is, Brian, he can drown his sorrows in a... A glass of $100 a bottle of nice red. Yes. I'm sure he's got a few in uh, his yes, cellar. I'm sure Malcolm has a great... Uh, and actually, in personal terms, I'm sure Malcolm would be a very sociable and interesting man and his wife, Lucy, uh, a very interesting couple with a, a very loving family and all of that. Malcolm's not a politician, I feel, animosity towards. I did to Tony Abbott, whom I detested. But I think many people find Malcolm an enormous disappointment. And that's reflected in the polls. And the Liberals know that. His failure to play out the small-l Liberal, which I think at heart he is, has been a great disaster for the Liberal Party as such. So along with Brexit and Donald Trump, the collapse of Malcolm Turnbull has been one of the other events of the year. Talk to you in 2017. Yes, well, we'll have to wait and we'll come back to our listeners at the end of January, is that right? That's about it. Yeah, all right. Well, could I wish everyone a, a happy holiday season and, uh, and to you and, uh, and to good health in the new year. Okay, thanks, Brian. Thanks, June. And you could virtually <clears throat> say poor Malcolm but you know it doesn't sort of fit with Malcolm Turner when you say poor and he deserves what he gets but there you go that was Brian McKinlay Labour researcher so you say author and historian talking about lots of things going on in 2016 and I'm quite sure there'll be lots more Happening in 2017. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. We are so lucky at 3CR. Artisan winemaker extraordinaire Luke Lambert has given us some wine to share with you. It's $15, folks. That's a major bargain. There's Shiraz, Chardonnay and Rosé and you can drink it all summer long and toast 3CR. Call us on 9419 or you can go to the 3CR website and look for the 3CR shop. Cool, that sounds easy. So are we posting it out? No, you've got to come into the station. Just make sure you come in before the 23rd of December. Awesome. It's going to be perfect for those hot summer days. Strawberries, cherries and an angel's kissing spring. Luke Lambert is a 3CR supporter.
The Good Room Social History Documenting and Sound Gallery presents Across the Water, an oral history performance for cello and electronics, followed by discussion with cellist Stephanie Arnold and Open City Stories Project Coordinator Rashith Savanadasa. Through the contemporary compositional technique of speech melody, the project draws attention to the power of the dominant narrative in the suppression of voices of the marginalised. Join us Friday, December the 9th, 390A Ligon Street, Brunswick East. Doors open at 6.30. Visit thefoundlingarchive.org.au for more information. Calling all supporters of refugee rights. Join the Refugee Action Collective for the Human Rights Day fundraiser on the 10th of December at the Reverence Hotel Footscray. Come and enjoy some of Melbourne's best music, comedy and performance poetry. Your support helps with costs of future RAC campaigns for refugee rights. Check out the Reverence Hotel's website for details. Tickets are $15 or $10 concession. Refugee Action Collective is a 3CR supporter. If you want life, you want love, you want hope, you've got to fight for it. You want freedom, you want justice, you want peace, you've got to fight for it. And now for the last time for 2016, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Let's set this be a focus, Nick, on the contrast between the Australian government's policy on climate change and related issues and those of our Pacific neighbours. We've seen the recent announcement by uh, Energy and Environment Minister Josh Frydenberg that the government is going to review Australia's targets for reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, uh, we have a very weak target of a reduction of 26 to 28% of greenhouse gas emissions compared to what it was like in 2005 by 2030. And under international negotiations, countries are being pushed to say not just what they want to do by 2020, by 2030, but indeed into the future, because the Paris Agreement that was signed uh, just over a year ago, uh, which is now in force, is uh, designed to ramp up ambition. You don't just come in with your first bid, as they did in the lead-up to Paris. You know, over time, the aim is that people will increase their efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And Australia has been widely criticised for very weak targets. Indeed, our emissions are rising by 6% by 2020 on estimates. And the only reason that we're going to meet our targets, so-called, is because we've built up carbon credits through land clearing policies and so on in the past. So we aren't actually doing much to reduce the emissions, the one exception being particularly the closure of Hazelwood, uh, one of the dirtiest coal-fired power stations in the world, not only in Australia. So there's a a lot that needs to be done. The government's in a bind, though, because uh, for years they campaigned to destroy any efforts to establish uh, carbon pricing mechanisms, uh, emissions trading scheme, and the Labor Party's carbon price, as we know, Tony Abbott worked successfully to destroy that. Now, within the terms of reference, there's some discussion about energy intensity but that's just a polite way of saying to find some sort of market mechanism to, uh, to price the cost of energy and to put an impost on companies that aren't meeting emissions reduction targets. Already you've got backbenchers, the mad right like Cory Bernardi, saying no way are we going to have 
uh, a review that will change current climate policy. So there's going to be a fight. And it's going to be a fight too because Australia is incredibly isolated at the moment after the um, uh, recent international climate negotiations held in Marrakesh. It's clear that countries are eager to implement the uh, Paris Agreement, particularly because of concern that Donald Trump, as he comes in as uh, US president, is going to gut the sort of executive order initiatives that President Obama took through using EPA regulations and so on to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in America. Can you just for a moment explain what happened at Marrakesh, what the outcome of that was? Yeah, one of the, the key decisions of the what they call the Conference of the Parties, the COP, um, which is the, the annual meeting of members of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the global climate negotiations, really surged ahead to try and push countries to implement the Paris Agreement. You know, the Paris Agreement is has got a lot of weaknesses. It's not a binding agreement. Uh, countries can vol- voluntarily put up offers of greenhouse gas emissions, um, but they're, they're not legally binding under the treaty. So it relies on political will, and that's where you have the United States and Australia constantly backsliding on uh, their stated ambition, which is to reduce uh, greenhouse gases and temperature warming, not just to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, but even lower, ultimately, to 1.5 and below. You know, Australia and the United States and a couple of other fossil fuel-rich countries are seen not only as laggards on this, but as actively destabilising these initiatives. Coming out of the the Marrakesh conference, um, Fiji's Prime Minister, Varenki Bainimarama, on a bit of a roll internationally, Fiji was elected as President of the UN General Assembly this year, first time a Pacific Island country has ever been elected as um, a UN General Assembly President. Bainimarama offered Donald Trump a a holiday in Fiji, said come and look at the devastation caused by Cyclone Winston, quite a, a sharp political intervention at a time that most countries were cozying up to Donald Trump. Fiji wants to make the point that US uh, policies will have an enormous impact on small island states. But Fiji also bid for and won on behalf of the Asia-Pacific group the right to, to be the, the president, the chair of the next Conference of the Parties, a meeting to be held in Bonn uh, in the middle of next year. So what is the going for Fiji that they managed these? Well, Fiji's been very active within uh, the Asia-Pacific group. And if you had to be a member of a group... You know, Australia and New Zealand, as we've discussed many times, are members of the Western European and others groups. So we're tied to dynamic economies like the British and the French and others. Whereas, uh, you know, the Pacific countries uh, that are members of the United Nations have joined the Asia bloc alongside China and Korea and Indonesia and India, major developing powers. And under the UN mandate, you know, every now and then there are votes um, and and, uh, the Pacific countries get their chance to be represented on UN uh, bodies so it's a sign of Fiji striking out with an independent foreign policy after the military regime, led by Commodore Bainimarama at the time, uh, was suspended from the Pacific Islands Forum. Fiji really expanded its diplomatic relations, joined the non-aligned movement, was very active in the G77, uh, the Group of 77, which is the in fact 132 countries, the largest bloc within the UN. And by 2013, Fiji was president of the G77 plus China. So they've been, you know, at the forefront of striking out an agenda that's different to the agenda that comes through the Pacific Islands Forum, where Australia and New Zealand have historically blocked initiatives that represent the priorities of island states. Obviously, that's on climate, but it's on other issues like trade and decolonisation, on West Papua and many other topics where uh, Australia stands aside from its Pacific neighbours. What about the other nation states in the Pacific? How are they getting on with their climate policies? 
Well, a number have been very active in calling for the implementation of Paris Agreement. Earlier this year at the Pacific Islands Forum in Ponape, the incoming forum chair, um, Peter Christian of the Federated States of Micronesia, said that Paris is not it, Paris is not enough. You know, it's very clear indeed that the voluntary pledges made under the Paris Agreement will still see temperature rises estimated at between 2.7 and 3.4, nearly 4 degrees, which is a catastrophe not just for developing countries in the Pacific but for the whole world. Those sorts of temperature rises would see enormous devastation across the world for agriculture, for water supply, for health and so on. So, you know, that sort of disaster is, is unthinkable. And so the Pacific, like other developing countries, are pushing for stronger action. And particularly, they're seeking the funding to make a rapid transition to new energy systems. It's very interesting at the moment, in competition to uh, investment infrastructure Uh, investment that comes from the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank and other bodies, China established a new international bank called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. At first, uh, the Americans were pressuring Western allies not to join the AIIB, so Japan uh, refused to come to the founding meeting of this new uh, Chinese-influenced bank. Um, Australia had a big policy debate about should we or shouldn't we. In the end, we decided to get involved. And one of the reasons was that even though the Americans are boycotting this initiative, seeing it as a threat to their economic hegemony in the, in the Asia-Pacific region, the Australians decided to get involved simply to try and influence the mandate. And not surprisingly, that battle is being played out now where the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is trying to set priorities and set the mandate for the bank. It's got $50 billion, rising to $100 billion of investment, uh, US dollars, And there's a big push from our Asian neighbours, countries like Thailand, Malaysia and others, China, to focus on renewable energy. There should be massive capital infusion into building new solar plants, building uh, hydro trials, building uh, new sorts of geothermal energy that are ultimately going to help with the challenge of climate change. Now, Australia is in the AIIB arguing for coal, the line that's trotted out in Australia all the time is that our neighbours need coal, our Asian neighbours need coal to promote their development. So here you've got our Asian neighbours saying we need to put massive investment into renewable energy and Australia is pushing on behalf of multinational corporations the interests of the, the fossil fuel lobby. And we see this very clearly in Queensland where the government is currently debating providing a billion dollars of taxpayer funds to the Adani operation, the Carmichael coal proposal in the Galilee Basin. You know, to get the coal from uh, central Queensland to the coast needs a railway and Australia is offering, the government is offering to subsidise that railway uh, to the tune of a billion dollars. Now at a time when there's a need for massive investment in renewables both in Australia and internationally, this is a pretty strong international signal and it understandably alienates and angers a lot of our neighbours Um, even those that still use coal-fired power stations. Just going back to the Chinese-initiated bank, did they set that up because they weren't getting a fair go with the other world banks or because they wanted to go in a a specific way and they couldn't get it with the other banks? Well, you know, the international financial institutions that were created really after the Second World War have always been dominated by Europe and America. Indeed, there's always been a, a de facto agreement that the head of the IMF should be uh, someone from Europe, the head of the Asian Development Bank should be someone from Japan, 
the head of the Asian, uh, the World Bank should be an American. There's a couple of variations to that, uh, but by and large, that's the sort of carve-up. So these international financial institutions that have been one of the great mechanisms to mobilise capital for investment um, and indeed for structural adjustment across the, the world have been very much influenced by Europe, by the United States. Obviously, with rising capitalist powers in Asia, like India and China, uh, Indonesia, Korea, they've been looking to create mechanisms that better reflect their interests and their priorities. And we've seen this battleground over trade agreements, where the United States had proposed, as part of its Pacific pivot, the Obama administration looked to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was a, a, a regional Pacific Rim trade agreement, but that excluded China. So it's pretty obvious that it's directed for the containment of China. China, in turn, has been proposing regional economic uh, groupings in East Asia that include uh, East Asian countries, include Australia, to a certain extent New Zealand, but exclude the United States. And we're seeing that battle over trade policy brewing uh, with the statements from uh, President-elect Trump, who's uh, really going to go on the warpath. Um, he's already sent one diplomatic signal by receiving a phone call from Taiwan, first time an American president has done that. And these sort of signals are part of the, the preparation for American attempts to contain Chinese power in uh, Asia-Pacific. Interesting times ahead, and uh, for Australia's capitalist class, they're uh, uncertain as to, to which way to go, whether uh, they're very fearful that Trump's uh, trade agenda is actually going to damage Australia's trade prospects in Asia, but they're also wary of getting uh, too closely aligned with China. So it's a, a significant dilemma for the Australian interests. Can you focus a few minutes on India with the Adani project? They're building nuclear power. They've got coal-fired power stations. But are they also renewables? India is a big country. You know, it's over a billion people and has enormous energy needs. But India is also one of the countries with the greatest inequality of the world. You have, uh, you know, very major industries, um, Tata Steel, uh, you know, Adani, uh, major corporations that operate on the global stage and invest internationally. At the same time, you have people living in, in terrible conditions in poverty in uh, rural agriculture and areas that are being badly affected by climate change, um, agriculture, water supply, the, the flow through the major rivers that run from the Himalayan mountains down through India and provide livelihoods for vast numbers of people still involved in, in rural agriculture. So that inequality in India is, is, is quite striking. And one of the things you've seen with the Indian state has always been attempts to centralise energy. And so India has developed its nuclear power program, both for the development of nuclear weapons in the 1970s and to maintain a nuclear arsenal against Pakistan particularly, but also to have centralised power. And what community groups have been long arguing is the need for more decentralised power. So the focus from government, which is to build you know, large centralised power stations, hydro dams and, and nuclear, is about centralising power within the state rather than generating the mixed type of power that's needed. Um, so you know, building nuclear power plants doesn't address India's transport problem. And with literally a billion people on the move every day, transport is a huge generator of uh, greenhouse gas emissions in India. So the push for coal-fired power that you hear, the propaganda coming from Josh Frydenberg and the Liberal Party about how India needs coal, 
Well, yeah, but India needs to address its transport sector, and that's not addressed by exporting coal. So there is a push for renewables in India, but uh, there are a number of Indian corporations who benefit from the existing setup in nuclear, which has massive state subsidies in India and in, uh, in fossil fuels. It's a big transition to make, and for a country of a billion people. The Chinese have been much more uh, strategic about that through the command and control economy uh, in China, where uh, they've been able to manage the shift towards renewable with much more state-run intervention than India's managed. What's happening in Europe with power? Well, there's big changes. Um, You look at Germany, which is a a significant player in the energy field uh, with big companies like Siemens and so on. The German government, which, remember, is a conservative government, Angela Merkel has come out of the right, not the left, has put massive investment in renewables and proposed a transition away from fossil fuels, a pretty rapid transition. That goes up and down depending on the economic conditions, but uh, uh, there's a major tipping point where German corporations are doing significant investment in urban uh, design, energy efficiency uh, and renewable technologies, wind power and so on. And it's very interesting to see Pacific governments beginning to look to Germany. You know, the Pacific has always been looking for allies in Europe for the global climate negotiations, facing, you know, major industrialising countries, uh, looking to coal, and the old fossil fuel lobby, Australia, Japan, uh, the United States, trying to block any initiatives. Um, The EU has been a potential ally for many Pacific governments, many least developed country governments, And so, for example, this year at the Pacific Islands Forum, Germany was made a post-forum dialogue partner. Pardon the jargon, but that means that after the forum every year, Pacific Island countries have a formal negotiation, formal dialogue with neighbouring countries. Germany's not been part of that network until now. Um, So, for me, it's a small sign about people looking to Germany as one of the powerhouses of the transition away from fossil fuels towards new sorts of energy. And that's happening pretty rapidly in Germany, which is a rich country, but uh, has less advantages than Australia in terms of wind power, solar and so on. We often ignore Africa, which is by far the the largest continent in the world. Is China moving in there in a a positive way? Well, the Chinese involvement in many developing countries is big on infrastructure. China's invested in railways, railways. in uh, ports and other facilities, to a certain extent in energy programs and so on. Not so much, though. They tend to be large, you know, infrastructure projects. And like large infrastructure projects run by the World Bank, they are often got a double-edged sword, you know, that they, yes, having transport and railways is an improvement uh, in the past, but if those railways are designed to increase the rate of resource exploitation so the railways can carry minerals to the coast, to the ports that have been built to ship them out. If timber can be ripped down faster because there's transport and roads into the interior of countries, they're there. And we've seen China investing in agriculture, China investing in energy and minerals in many countries, in Africa, in Asia, and even in the small countries like the Pacific. So you've had China with the Ramu nickel mine in Papua New Guinea, China proposing investments in Fiji for bauxite. China, certainly like other Asian countries, interested in fishing, tuna fishing in the exclusive economic zones of the the region, you know, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. So China, like any growing capitalist power, is looking for resources and is willing to use its infrastructure 
mechanisms like the bank we talked about before to promote you know the resource exploitation and you see that a lot in Africa which historically the old European colonial powers Britain France uh, Spain to a certain extent you know had networks and you've seen competition through what's called the Great Lakes region around Rwanda and so on between the French the Americans but also increasingly the Chinese Once again, like India, there's enormous inequality in African countries. There are modern capitalist sectors. There's significant industrial development in some countries like Nigeria and South Africa. Um, At the same time, there's incredible poverty, particularly in the rural areas with very poor small-scale infrastructure. So China's investment tends to be these large-scale investment projects rather than small community-level stuff. So renewable energy is not a priority? Well, it varies from country to country. You know, Africa is such a a diverse place, it's very hard to generalise. In North Africa, for example, north of the Sahara, you see some significant work being done on renewable energy. There's a lot of desert, and uh, to that extent, um, everyone from Israel to to Morocco and others have got significant renewable energy programs looking at harnessing solar power. There's quite a lot of work being done on hydro in areas around the Great Lakes, uh, where there's obvious advantages from the rivers Um, That causes some tensions. You know, Egypt and Sudan have had debates about whether the rivers should be dammed, um, whether these grand mega projects that involve, you know, creating hydro schemes just by damming massive rivers like the Upper Nile cause enormous political tensions between countries. But there is a shift. Look, there's a shift everywhere around the world towards looking at new energy sources as companies think about investments, you know, there is a significant trend. Whatever Donald Trump says, capitalists are voting with their feet. You know, venture capital is investigating all sorts of new technologies to make the transition. The real debate is whether we're at a tipping point to, uh, you know, for that to ride ahead, regardless of the sort of policies that come from governments like Australia, like the Trump administration, or whether, you know, they're going to be able to set back progress uh, by five years and we had that already with Australia you know the Howard years um, the Kyoto Protocol um, that was was developed through the UNFCCC framework the UN framework convention on climate change you know Australia signed but then refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocol for a decade and it was a lost decade where the Howard government systematically resisted efforts to ramp up ambition on addressing climate change And one of the first things that Kevin Rudd did, he was elected in November 2007. In December 2007, he went to the Bali COP meeting and stood alongside uh, Sir Michael Samari, the then Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, and ratified the protocol. But all we did was ratify protocol we should have bloody ratified 10 years before. Um, So Australia's ambition, we're seen as such a laggard in these climate negotiations. I don't think people in Australia realise how much we're regarded as a fossil dinosaur in this. And when you hear the current government talking about spending another billion dollars to build a railway for Adani to ship more coal out of the country, um, that's going against international trends. And, you know, we'll live with the consequences. And I think, however, we're going to see a political battle next year, the review that Josh Frydenberg's announced of our, our targets, on, by any measure, will show how weak Australia's current targets are in spite of government spin and how internationally things are moving on. I mean, we may look good in terms of Donald Trump as he sets to to damage what little work um, the Obama administration did. But um, anywhere else in the world, uh, you know, we're really isolated. What were the pressures for Frydenberg to bring on this review? Well, we were legally obliged to do it. Uh, You know, this is the problem. We sign on to, to treaties like the Paris Agreement 
and the Paris Agreement, as I say, countries can put in what's called their INDC, their Nationally Determined Contribution. So this is a voluntary contribution. We pledge to meet this target by 2020. We pledge to meet that target by 2030. We don't have a target for 2050. Uh, We should, uh, but we don't. Many other countries do have set out a transition. You know, this can't happen overnight, and we've seen with the closure of Hazelwood, there are real impacts on ordinary working people and on communities that have based their life around fossil fuel exploitation, around coal mining, around steel, around aluminium, like in Portland. You know, there has to be a just transition for workers in these industries who, you know, need retraining or redeployment to new opportunities. And there's great initiatives like the Earth Worker Cooperative that's been trying for many years to get investment to set up a solar hot water business, drawing on the manufacturing skills of workers who are being displaced in the Latrobe Valley. Try and get the money from that, from the Australian business? It's a, it's a nightmare, you know, because people are still hoping that we'll be able to just keep exporting coal forever. There's real contradictions within the coalition. It's Some gonna... people realise they have to do something to improve our international image, even there. Um, companies are starting to vote with their feet, seeking clarity to make investments for solar that are going to last more than two or three years before government changes the policy. And yet you've got a whole lot of recalcitrants who still want to promote the coal industry and people in the National Party who've given up on the farming community and promoting coal and gas fracking against the interests of farmers. That's why we've seen in Australia broad coalitions like the Lock the Gate Alliance, which have united environmentalists and farmers who want to protect agricultural industries against uh, coal mining literally on their doorstep. So is there going to be a big band fight with the coalition? Well, it involves trade unions, environment groups, community groups stepping up to say that we have to make this transition in Australia. You know, it's a matter of changing not just Liberal Party policy, but but, uh, the policy of all the major political parties. You know, the the current targets that we're we're heading towards are well beyond the two degrees of warming that is the tipping point for, for not just bad but catastrophic environmental, social, economic dislocation. We are at tipping points internationally, you know, around uh, the warming of permafrost to release methane. We're at a real tipping point environmentally in terms of major changes happening with... Uh, glacier melting with uh, the release of methane from permafrost in places in Russia and Siberia and so on, with uh, damage to the reef. Uh, Pauline Hansen might go for a skinny dip in the, in the ocean, but uh, there's significant damage to coral reefs from uh, repeated incidences of uh, coral bleaching. You know, the, these sort of ecological shifts are happening slowly, but um, we may reach points of no return. Arctic sea ice, uh, Antarctica... You know, the list goes on and on and on. And it really is important that trade unions, that uh, community organisations, that uh, ordinary Australians step up and say that the the sort of game playing going on with the minimalist targets that Australia continues to push are just not enough. (coughs) This is the last program for the year, Nick. Can you do a bit of a wrap-up? Well, it's been a really interesting year, Um, Regular listeners will know that we talk a lot about the Pacific and the Pacific Islands, Australia's uh, neighbourhood, and there's been some big changes this year. I mean, the Pacific Islands Forum has uh, changed from being an organisation of independent and sovereign states to including two French territories, 
That's an enormous change at a, a time that the regional infrastructure is under stress because of differences uh, within the forum over things like climate change over West Papua. You know, a debate that's been sort of brewing for decades, but has really hit the headlines internationally and indeed in Australia, where many Pacific governments and Pacific people are taking up the issue of human rights and self-determination in West Papua. So that's been a big shift, a generational shift, and we saw at the UN uh, General Assembly special session in September this year, seven Pacific governments talked about West Papua, with a few of them calling specifically for the right to self-determination for the people of West Papua. That's an unprecedented global intervention by Pacific Island states. So there's some big shifts happening. The climate change shifts we've been talking about are, are part of that bigger picture that countries are being forced to look at a transition towards new economy, to new energy systems, and to debate who's going to pay for that transition on the international stage. The election, however, of uh, um, Donald Trump is going to set back international efforts um, in a whole range of areas. And it's going to force some real debates, though, about um, you know, how countries network internationally, how people network internationally to address the sort of setbacks that are going to come from a Trump administration. Um, and you see that within Europe at the moment, where um, already the, you know, Francois Hollande, the French president, has abandoned a bid for re-election. Um, that uh, um, you know, there are significant votes in Italy, uh, in Austria, about uh, their political status. The Brexit vote in England, uh, the potential for um, uh, a breakaway in Scotland. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things on the move in the next few years, and the economic crisis in America and the Trump administration's response are going to speed up that debate. For Australia, obviously, uh, you know, the confrontation between the United States and China in the Asia-Pacific region is going to force some significant debates in Australia, given Chinese investment in our agriculture, but given China's ongoing problems with uh, proletarian discontent, with energy uh, and environment, with the national question over Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, you know, we're in for a, a few interesting years Closer to home, amazing times coming. A referendum in New Caledonia in 2018 on independence. A referendum in Bougainville on 2019, uh, June 2019, on their political future. Um, you know, Canberra's suddenly going to discover there's this arc of instability to Australia's north and east. Um, you know, the old uh, colonial attitudes will rear their head in the next few years as um, Australians realise the world around them is changing pretty rapidly and um, we have to, to start uh, taking a stand on some of these policies. Interesting times ahead. Good luck for 2017. And thanks to Nick McClellan for all his contributions throughout 2016, and hopefully they'll continue in 2017. And, of course, Nick is a journalist and researcher par excellence. You were invited to Sampari Exhibition, in support of West Papua. Sampari Exhibition, featuring a series of events celebrating West Papuan culture, supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Sampari Exhibition, art, film, debate, environment discussion, food and music. Opening Friday, December 2nd, 6pm, running to Sunday, December 11. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. More information, Sampari Exhibition, Facebook. 
hosted by the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm. Then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Mac Kunkel on 0405 748 242. Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. Now to Cuba. I'd like to read first a short extract from an article by Sergio Alexandro Gomez. You can learn as much about a man from his critics as you can from his admirers. Henry Kissinger, U.S. Secretary of State under Nixon, described Fidel in his memoirs as perhaps the most genuine revolutionary leader in power at that time. The former Secretary of State and advisor to various U.S. presidents was referring to 1975 when, to the surprise of the U.S., Cuba lent its support to the Angolan independence struggle. In the Cold War geopolitics at the time, the Soviets were opposed to direct involvement, while Washington blatantly supported the racist apartheid regime in South Africa. Fidel once again demonstrated that the revolution, which had triumphed on the 1st of January 1959, was motivated by principles and that Cuba was no one's satellite. The heroism of those Cuban soldiers who fought in Africa and Fidel's leadership helped to change the history of the continent and, as Nelson Mandela himself stated, end apartheid. This was the first time a small country in the Western Hemisphere had sent troops outside of the continent, which, to the amazement of many, secured an overwhelming victory. Cuba stood as a reminder that, when motivated by ideals of justice, even a small country can fight against global powers. It was revolutionary. Nevertheless, since his death, the knives had been sharpened by those who both feared and loathed a man who, together with his comrades, dared to stand up against the tyranny of US imperialism and succeeded to set an example for others in similar situations, the left domino threat which consumed his detractors. Joan Coxich, former politician, former president of the Australian-Cuba Friendship Society and all-round political activist, 
visited Cuba three times. Joan, can you briefly outline the Cuba that the people lived in prior to 1959 and the revolution? It was a, a country that was very divided. It was very corrupt. It was run by a, a brutal dictator, Batista. There was massive illiteracy, high unemployment, and five U.S. sugar companies controlled more than two million acres of the most arable land. It was a, a, a nation that welcomed the mafia, who ran a lot of the gambling and prostitution, and which overran uh, Havana in particular. There had been a number of insurrections over the years that had always been very brutally put down. And so the country, you could say, was ripe for revolution because the the situation became so bad the Cuban government, that's the Batista government, armed the people and posted lookouts throughout the city, you know, to try and look at what the hell was going on. We could go back, I suppose, even further if you wanted to, and that is that Fidel Castro, he was a student leader and with hundred and twenty other comrades he attacked the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba in July 1953. Now, he hoped to trigger a mass insurrection, but only 30 survived. Fidel was lucky to be one of them who did. The rest were captured, tortured and killed. But their action gave birth to the July the 26th movement. And what happened then, Fidel and his comrades fled into the mountains, but they were rounded up in a huge manhunt. But public anger forced a trial because they... The, Batista mob, of course, wanted to just shoot them out of hand and tried separately and in secret. Fidel acted as his own lawyer and his impassioned defence outlining his revolutionary program for reform was smuggled out of jail and was published as History Will Absolve Me, which became a very, very famous piece of writing. But he was sentenced to 15 years jail. But thanks to, a, a, again, a, a, a very vigorous public campaign, the young revolutionaries were released and they fled to Mexico where they reorganised, raised a lot of money and they trained with a veteran of the Spanish Wars. And that's when he met the young, charismatic, if you like, uh, Argentinian Dr Che Guevara. And Guevara was a self-taught Marxist whose vision of social change was, was utterly uncompromising. And in 1956, Fidel, brother Raul, Che... And 79 others sailed to Cuba in Grandma, which was a leaky second-hand cabin cruiser. And if you go to Old Havana, it's now enshrined in a glass case for people to look at and wonder at. Well, they were blown off course by a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, and they landed at Playa Las Coloradas, the wrong beach. Batista's planes attacked them and they lost their boat, they lost their weapons, they lost their provisions, as well as 67 men. But can you imagine, 12 survivors only, and they headed for an isolated part of the Sierra Maestra where they rested and they made friends with the local workers and peasants and they grew beards, and that's where they earned their nickname Barbudos, the beards. Volunteers and aid poured in. And a year later, the bearded ones were running the province. And news got out about uh, their successes and spread throughout the island via Radio Rebelde, which was a, obviously a rebel radio, and eventually reached the outside world after a New York Times reporter, Herbert Matthews, interviewed Fidel in his mountain sanctuary. 
So what happened then? Cubans buried their differences and they formed a united front of peasants, workers and students. Some fought in the mountains while others fought in the cities. And Batista retaliated with a no-wounded, no-prisoners response with the police killing thousands of revolutionaries while the US continued to supply Batista with tanks, planes and bombs. And in 1957, students formed, uh, stormed the presidential palace and another group took over the radio station. And a 241-man battalion surrendered to Fidel Castro after a siege that lasted for 10 days. And in the early hours of January the 1st, 1959, Batista and his cronies fled to the Dominican Republic and the revolution had become the government and hundreds of Batista's torturers and assassins were tried and shot but the majority scarpered off to Miami and the US sent three destroyers and two submarines to Havana to see what it could salvage and Fidel flew to Washington to smooth things over but was totally ignored and I think people still remember if they're old enough the, the image and that's when he first came to world prominence at the age of 30 as leader of the Cuban Revolution when he rolled into Havana on a captured tank under a blazing Caribbean sun with long beards, hair and their anarchic energy and courage that he and his comrades carried cemented their place, I think, part of a new chapter in, in the <coughs> development of Cuba. A huge task ahead of them, Joan. Oh, huge task, because they faced massive illiteracy, high unemployment, and as I said, an outmoded rural sector where five US sugar companies, they controlled more than two million acres of the best land. And what he did immediately, he moved very, very swiftly. He immediately liberated large tracts to small farmers. He introduced free health care and education, halved rents and outlawed racial discrimination, the rich people, the thousands of professionals, they, they fled off to Miami where they linked up with Batista remnants to set up a virulent anti-communist fiefdom. And Washington, as you can imagine, got even more agitated when Castro closed the casinos. He took over the houses owned by the rich. He did away with private beaches and exclusive country clubs and he established unrestricted freedom of the press, which had previously only published news made in the US of A. And it was, if you like, the very beginning of Washington's secret deadly war against the tiny island nation. And in February 1960, two aircraft bombed Havana suburbs and President Eisenhower instructed the CIA to train Cuban emigres. And in March, a French steamship called La Cubra, full of arms and ammunition purchased from Belgium, blew up in Havana docks, killing 70 people. And the Catholic Church, initially benign, became increasingly shrill as reform programs kicked in. Half the priests shifted to the United States and the majority of Cubans simply stopped going to church. And in 1961, U.S. planes napalmed sugarcane fields and dropped anti-Castro leaflets over Havana. Now, Cuba didn't produce oil and therefore was forced to buy from a U.S. monopoly which virtually could charge what it liked. Soviet chief at that time was McCoy and he offered cheaper oil in exchange for sugar and Cuba signed a formal contract. But Yankee refineries still operating inside Cuba refused to refine the Soviet product. So Cuba nationalised the refineries, which makes a great deal of sense. 
and enraged Washington withdrew its petroleum technicians and stopped buying sugar. Cuba responded by nationalising all US property. So Castro booted out US diplomats and the two countries severed diplomatic ties. The US embargoed all goods going to the island and launched a campaign of sabotage and terror. They burned shops, bombed factories and schools and assassinated many Cubans. That was how the committees in defence of the revolution were born and I met many of them when I was there and they were the ones that kept a lookout for, for bad things happening in their area. But the final break came in April 1961 when a CIA-trained brigade of 1,300 mercenaries landed on Cuba's south coast at uh, the Bay of Pigs, La Bahia de Cochinas, with five ships, two battleships and three freighters in an attempt to destroy the new government while fleets of American aeroplanes painted with the insignia of the Cuban Air Force bombed airports in Havana and other major cities. Cubans rose up and within 72 hours of liberators, so-called liberators, were routed. And the thousand or so taken prisoners in Cuba, including a number of priests, were exchanged for medicines and baby food. Now, Kennedy's threat to obliterate Cuba spurred Castro to ask the Soviet Union for some rockets. Cuba was kicked out of the Organization of American States and in October 1962, Kennedy put a total blockade on the island. The Cuban Missile Crisis developed into a global crisis and there was a feeling we'd, we'd all be blown to kingdom come. Kennedy and Khrushchev shirt-fronted each other, but Khrushchev sensibly pulled back and Kennedy promised never to invade Cuba. The missiles were withdrawn and if you remember that time, Jan, we all breathed again. I think we all thought we really were going to be blown to king, kingdom come. But during that crucial powwow, Fidel Castro wasn't consulted by either major power, which meant that America's Guantanamo naval base stayed put. And years later, information seeped out about plans for a secret second invasion called Operation Mongoose for a full-scale onslaught on the island under General Edward Lansdale with the cooperation of at least two other Western nations, and I'm not too sure who they are. And it was just the beginning. Because ten presidents in a row have behaved like thugs. They've organised bombings, sabotage, assassination attempts, commando raids, hijackings and this strangling blockade. And the blockade, as has been mentioned, it's cost Cuba more than $89 billion, 80% of which involved food and medicines. It's absolutely been disgraceful. And the Washington Post reported that the CIA had been running an anti-crop program against Cuba since 1962, a secret establishment based near the city of Baltimore and Fort Detrick in Maryland, where chemical and biological weapons were developed for this express purpose. And it's been reported the US tried to knock off Fidel Castro God knows how many times, hundreds certainly, on occasion using crackpot methods like exploding cigars. They've denied that now because I think they find it extremely embarrassing. Yet despite all the provocations and the, the attempts on lives and things, the education system and the health care system in Cuba blossomed. Absolutely. Well, the first, one of the first things Fidel did again was to send young people out into the countryside in a literacy program. And these young people taught the peasants how to read and how to write, which was uh, just an amazing achievement. 
and also he uh, he increased uh, 35 universities were established and you could say after that great campaign uh, the illiteracy cam- the literacy campaign it, illiteracy was virtually eradicated and uh, he increased the number of doctors from 6000 to 40000 in a healthcare system that eliminated infectious diseases and it drastically lowered the mortality rate which remains the lowest in Latin America and many other parts of the world. When I was there, actually, uh, I went into the rural areas of Cuba where they had family doctors. Now, they were very, very short of drugs, as you can imagine, due to the blockade. So the main aim of these doctors was to keep the people well. In other words, they didn't wait for them to get sick, but their main aim was to keep them well. And they were responsible for about 200 families, and it seemed to work very, very well. I visited quite a few And you could see how they were desperately short of drugs, but they were spotlessly clean. They had nurses working there, and the people just had free capacity to visit whenever they wanted, and the doctors used to go out and visit them when they were ill, and it seemed to work. worked very well. And really, the family doctors were their first line of defence. They needed three years of graduate training and internship beyond the basic six years of study. You know, that's a lot of study. That's virtually nine years to qualify and as I mentioned they served a community roughly about 150 to 200 families but in 1992 minus the Soviet Union after it um, fell apart Washington really went for the jugular you had George Bush senior and he enacted what I call the laughably named Cuban Democracy Act, which drastically tightened the blockade by imposing discriminatory tax penalties against nations and companies, including US subsidies in Europe and Australia, which traded with Cuba, and it prohibited all merchant ships from entering US ports for six months if they visited the island. And the US actually, the State Department actually circulated a list of business houses, banks, ships, and individuals with links to Cuba. And then in 1996, the so-called Democrat Clinton paid his dues to the the ageing maddies running around Florida's Everglades. He got a lot of money from them, and he implemented the Helms-Burton legislation, which gave US courts the power to award damages against foreign companies using Cuban properties confiscated during the 1959 revolution. Now, it was based on the lie that no compensation was paid after Cuba nationalised property when the very opposite was true. Cuba acted in full accordance with international law and practice and signed agreements with Canada, Switzerland, the UK, Spain and France, but Washington refused to take part. Now, after the Helms-Burton legislation won congressional approval, the US sent letters to Britain, Mexico and Canada, giving them 45 days to get out of Cuba in clear breach of international law. It was the, the Helms-Burton um, nightmare was vigorously rejected by both the European Union and the Organisation of American States, which is a reflection of the widespread global opposition to Washington's appalling treatment of Cuba, as clearly seen in the United Nations vote when the question of the US blockade was raised. And I think the last time it came up was a couple of weeks ago. And I think for the first time, the US and Israel, who were the only two left who used to um, oppose the move to get rid of the um, blockade, they took a neutral stance. They obviously recognised that the two of them were to stand out nightmares.
Now, unfortunately, of course, the vote is non-binding. Anyway, there they were, and they're still fighting like hell, and then due to ill health, going back a bit, Fidel Castro was forced to stand down as president in 2007, was replaced by his brother Raoul. Now, it was quite obvious that Fidel was not well, not well at all. But he was still intellectually right on the money, and he used his new title as commentator-in-chief to give us an incisive analysis of current events and continued, continued, continued right up until his death to discuss current events and all matters with Raoul. What was also important with Cuba, Joan, was that the assistance to others in struggle and what oh, the West feared most, setting the example for others to follow. Absolutely. Their internationalism was impeccable. They not only became a world leader in cancer research, they sent humanitarian missions to 68 countries, trained more than 18,000 doctors under a free scholarship scheme, hundreds of them on our doorstep in East Timor, and they treated free of charge some 26,000. But they did. They went, they helped people all around the world, all poor countries, particularly in their own region, of course, in Latin America. They formed very close relationships with the Latin American, you know, various Latin American countries. You went there three times, Joan. You must have seen quite a lot of Cuba over that time. I did. I went uh, once as an individual, and then what I did, I went in two work brigades, but I stayed on, and I think that's the most valuable thing, because I was on my my own and I travelled freely around the country because at that stage I was preparing for running an exhibition actually of drawings because I just fell in love with their beautiful Spanish historical architecture. It's just amazing streetscapes and buildings, certainly in desperate need of paint and repair but still I know, magical. As far as an artist is concerned you just couldn't help but fall in love with them. So I used to wander around old Havana, of course, and then many other parts of the country and just draw. And in the process, I did get to see a hell of a lot. I managed with difficulties sometimes to communicate with Cubans because my Spanish is pretty pathetic, but I carried my little Berlitz how to speak Spanish with me at all times, and we, we, we seemed to manage. And Cubans were, were intrigued at what I was doing because here I would be sitting in a on a footpath in the blazing sun drawing one of their buildings and they really were they're very curious people and I'd end up with 10 deep around me wondering what the hell I was up to but it was a great way to make you know friends with the people and talk to them and uh, share what I was doing uh, because on my first visit I'd been very fortunate actually to come across Eusebio Leal who was the chief historian of the city of Old Havana and he liked my drawings and he said well come back and uh, I'll help you to put on an exhibition of your drawings. Well I went back a couple of times and that's exactly what I did. I drew, I worked you know with the brigade and then after that was all over I used to just wander off and take off around the country and draw and meet them and talk to them and drink their mojitos and really fell in love with the country and in uh, the third visit I went I had a terrific exhibition in the patio of the palace of the captain's general in old Havana and it you know it was a magical time and ASABO Leal opened the exhibition and it was um, in place there 
for a couple of weeks. And I was able to raise a lot of money for Cuba at that time too. I made a calendar of my drawings, I made prints of my drawings and sold them here and made quite a few thousand dollars which I was able to give to most of it to uh, ASABO because they were desperately in need of money. This was during a difficult time when they were really hard up after the Soviet Union went to the wall. They went through an extremely difficult time when food was desperately short. It forced them, actually, the, the shortages actually forced them to adopt different methods, uh, if you like, in the uh, rural sector. It forced the greening of Cuba. At that time, with the Soviet Union going to the wall, they lost more than 80% of foreign trade. The supply of petroleum fell by more than half. They just had this huge task of how to produce twice as much food with, it, with almost no chemicals in an agricultural system that had been based on large-scale monoculture. And they had been using a high, high uh, amount of artificial fertilisers and insecticides, so it had no choice but to fundamentally change the way food was grown. They were so innovative, they switched from its highly mechanised path to a more flexible way of operating. And they sort of initiated a number of reforms, and some of them changed probably even in the last uh, five years or so, but they redistributed all arable land and they allocated 40% to small farmers with a maximum size of 27 hectares to those who planted food crops and orchards on land previously used for coffee and tobacco and it stopped the spraying of pesticides. They did things that we should be doing here. They reduced food transport distances by focusing on urban agriculture. Uh, agriculture. The government gave unused land to anyone who wanted to cultivate it and the Provincial Ministry of Agriculture set up a special department to support new gardeners. It also ran shops that supplied seeds and tools. And the kitchen gardens could be personal, they could be family or collective, with some attached to institutions such as schools and daycare centres and ranged in size from postage stamps to two or more hectares. And as a result, the urban agricultural movement spread rapidly across Havana's barrios, putting the nation's capital of 2.2 million on the path to sustainability. And today, I'm not sure of the percentage, but it's very high. Um, certainly more than 50% of Havana's vegetables are grown in the city, while in the urban gardens of other Cuban towns and cities, the figures have risen to between 80 to 100%. And farmers have learned new organic, organic methods. They're encouraged to use legumes to put nitrogen back into the soil to establish worm farms and practice crop associations so that each crop controls the other's pests. There's also been a return to oxen. So not only do oxen save on fuel, but they also churn the soil instead of compacting it as tractors do. And I like this quote from the Roberto Sanchez. He's from the Foundation for Nature and Humanity. And he said, you have to follow the natural cycles. So you hire nature to work for you, not work against nature. To work against nature, you waste huge amounts of energy. And that's how it's, go it's gone on. Are you, like many people, concerned about the future, Joan? Yes, I, I can't help but be concerned about the future. I know that the, the mood in Cuba, especially during, you know, the funeral of Fidel and when his ashes really were transported right throughout the length and breadth of Cuba to Santiago, to Cuba, where 
the service was held and the, the whole area, the, the route was lined with people saying, I am Fidel, meaning that they will carry on what he was doing, they'll carry on his legacy. I worry about Trump, of course, and I worry about, you know, just what he's likely to do, the sort of people he's put in with him. There's some very, very right-wing nasty people. He's made some very nasty statements from the moment he uh, he became the president-elect. So it's, there's a lot of uncertainty around. But I don't think the Cubans will ever give up without one hell of a fight. They've got a lot to support. They never do. The old ones particularly remember what was like under Batista. So I, I think that they'll, you know, they'll fight like hell, and I think we've got to support them in every way we can outside Cuba. And I think a lot of a lot of the world have been so, if you like, amazed at what Castro has done. They do see what's happening in their own countries compared to what Cuba has been able to achieve. I just think there's so much support out there and so much concern about the societies we're all living in that we see we see the corruption we see the inequalities growing we see the destruction of our environment and we know that we need something a lot better than that if we're to survive and i think cuba provides us with a very fine example so i say viva cuba and you've been listening to joan coxage former president of the australia cuba friendship society met someone who went to Cuba three times on work brigades, but also doing her drawings of the the wonderful old buildings in Cuba. Strawberries, cherries and an angel's kiss in spring My summer wine is really made from all these things We are so lucky at 3CR. Artisan winemaker extraordinaire Luke Lambert has given us some wine to share with you. It's $15, folks. That's a major bargain. There's Shiraz, Chardonnay and Rosé, and you can drink it all summer long and toast 3CR. Call us on 9419 or you can go to the 3CR website and look for the 3CR shop. Cool, that sounds easy. So are we posting it out? No, you've got to come into the station. Just make sure you come in before the 23rd of December. Awesome. It's going to be perfect for those hot summer days. Strawberries, cherries and an angel's spring. Luke Lambert is a 3CR supporter. And of course you don't have to drink it all yourself. You can give it for a present, so... What a great idea to have some nice wine and also to support 3CR. And this is another present that you could buy for the festive season. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. 
And we conclude the program today with Palestine Independence Day. One of the speakers at Federation Square was Palestinian-Australian playwright Samar Sabawi. Thank you, and what an amazing event. Now, doesn't Melbourne look beautiful this afternoon? To be honest, I'm not one for flag ceremonies, and I can't sing a national anthem for the life of me. My Palestine is not borders and geography or some exclusive nationalist cause or a money-making industry. My Palestine is not subjected to fashion trends and not owned by any factions. My Palestine is simply the quest for freedom, justice, and equality. So forgive me if I feel choked up and unable to speak political correctness. But today marks the anniversary of the Algeria Conference, the 1988 Palestine Declaration of Independence. And it was the date that the PLO made its biggest historic compromise when it gave up all the leverage that we had. On this day 28 years ago, we began the path towards a two-state solution. Enough said, let me start over. My love and respect to all of you, the organizers whose hearts are in the right place. You've raised our flag today in the heart of this beautiful city. And for that, we are grateful. And I want to say to the Palestinian-Australian community, well done to all of you mothers and fathers for safeguarding our culture and for nourishing our identity and for teaching us and a whole new generation how to be the best Australian-Palestinians that we can be. I want to also say thank you to the Palestine Solidarity Groups for their principled stand with the oppressed Palestinians and to urge them to continue to advocate for Palestinian rights and to heed the call of the Palestinian civil society for boycotts, divestments and sanctions that I hope will be delivered. Like many Palestinians who dare think, I feel bruised roughed up, betrayed, entangled in razor wire, scotch-taped on the mouth, and told to be a good Palestinian and not to criticize, and to support our leader's grand illusion of negotiations towards a two-state solution, but there is nothing left of Palestine except bantustans and payrolls. So on behalf of many, I want to be clear that this flag we raise today is not meant to represent Armani suits and Ramallah mansions. It is not meant It is not meant for powerless ministries and cowardice leaders who have reduced the ceiling of our aspirations to breadcrumbs and begging balls. It is not meant to contain our human worth within numbers printed on ID papers and crossing permits. This flag, this flag is not meant to be used in a tug of war between greens and yellows and God knows what, after the bombs fall. This is the flag that dries the tears of mothers in hospital corridors. This is the flag of the Shaheeds, of the refugees, of the prisoners and the besieged. And so as we enjoy this sunny day here in Melbourne, I urge you to think of this. The clouds have gathered over Palestine for so long, the sky is pregnant with rage. It is time for a downpour. 
for there are not enough days left in the calendar for all the commemorations, not enough minutes of silence for all of our martyrs, and not enough seconds to waste on regrets because we held back and we acted polite when we should have been screaming off the top of our lungs. Now, I don't mean to damper the spirit of this glorious occasion, but these words really needed to be said. And now that I've got them off my chest, there is one more thing I'd like to say to my beautiful city, Melbourne. Congratulations, Melbourne. You look so brilliant wearing the Palestinian flag. And that was Palestinian-Australian playwright and activist Samar Sabawi speaking at Palestine Independence Day a couple of weeks ago at Federation Square. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And I'll finish with a song for last Saturday, which was the 3rd of December. I'll be back next week at 4. Bye for now.